it is good to be home. It's good to be with family and friends, getting to know new friends in this place, catching up on the ministries of Northminster, and having the opportunity to thank you. Thank you for the witness that you are in this city and in this state, and as a church that stands in the historic Baptist tradition. I am fortunate to be here this week and this weekend and to reaffirm my place as one of God's children shaped in this place. I grew up in South Jackson and my two brothers and sister joined my parents here at Northminster when I was uh, early in my college years at Mississippi College. I had already learned about Baptist freedom because I had experienced it. It wasn't explicitly like I talk about it now, but it was in the way that we worshiped, the way we read the Bible freely by ourselves and we discussed it. We prayed to God out loud. Our access was direct, free and responsible. And when the time was right, I voluntarily took that walk by myself independently down the aisle to present myself for baptism. Those are Baptist ways that, talk, that remind us of freedom. But it was here at Northminster when I was in college at MC that I learned more about being Baptist as distinct from other traditions. My church family grew. I had some rich experiences at Mississippi College, particularly as I engaged with some professors who challenged me, along with some really smart friends that pushed me. And I especially got a kick out of the exposure to so many missionary kids who were like us, but not like us. I'm sure it was at Mississippi College not too long after I was there where I started to develop my use of soul freedom in leading me to claim my place among Baptists as one who was willing to voice dissent. I remember one time particularly when I talked to the Dean of Women and in my Christian confidence challenged a rule that I thought was patently unfair. I believe she said I had a problem with authority. <laughs> I think I did. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the weekends here at Northminster, I worshiped with my family and got to continue to grow in my faith. Got to enjoy the beautiful music of this church and the setting and to continue to feel the most important things that I had learned about God and Jesus and love in the world. And it was here at Northminster that I learned of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. It led to an internship in DC after I later graduated from college at Wake Forest and influenced my decision to study law. And after years of practice in private practice, I ended up in DC when my husband took a job um, at George Washington University there and eventually led to my going to the BJC as general counsel. At the BJC, I get to commit my full-time professional practice to serving in the Baptist witness for religious liberty, supported by a range of Baptist organizations and churches and individuals to protect religious freedom and specialize in the law of church and state. Our program is singular. We work on matters relating to the relationship between religion and government. We do not work on all the policy matters about which Christians are concerned and should be involved. Of course, the churches that support us and the churches we attend are very much interested and involved in matters of justice and peace, social services, care for the earth, and other policy concerns. We see religious freedom as a common background for all of these other important matters, and we stay closely connected to churches. 
The BJC's mission is to continue in the Baptist legacy for freedom, to defend and extend God-given religious liberty for all, championing the principle that religion must be freely exercised, neither advanced nor inhibited by the government. This means that we support the principles that underlie the First Amendment as an essential restraint on government and a promise of the free exercise of religion with minimal bureaucratic intrusion. That means we advocate for religion in all its various voices to be free to flourish in the public square. Religion should thrive or fail on its own merits and the power of its message, not through the coercive power or sponsorship of government. Authentic religion does not need that kind of help. It is a message powerful enough to hold us together for more than 80 years and build a reputation worthy of protection. So as a lawyer and advocate for religious freedom, often speaking in a variety of less familiar and comfortable settings, I'm often asked why we exist, why we dedicated ourselves to this work. And I have a shorthand way of saying that it is important to us as a matter of theology and history and our experience, our practical application. So today I just want to say a little bit about those things. As we share in this ministry of religious freedom together, first it's easy to talk about our experience, the practical application. The most concise way to explain the practical basis why Baptists should support religious freedom is because it works. Baptists and other religious minorities and dissenters that had suffered at the hands of a situation where the church and state were combined had an essential role in pushing the founders to design our Constitution and the First Amendment making clear the limits on government in matters of religion while protecting individual religious freedom. It was a bold experiment, and it worked. We don't always live up to it, but it has largely worked. In her last First Amendment case before she retired from the bench, Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor reminded us with this, voluntary religious belief and expression may be as threatened when government takes the mantle of religion upon itself as when government directly interferes with private religious practices. Stop and think about that. We are quick to see when government burdens us or interferes with us, but we should also be quick to recognize that when government asserts religious authority, claims to speak for religion, it deprives religion of its vitality, it denies the, the diversity among us, and it tends to water down our message. O'Connor summarized the court's interest in protecting against government-sponsored religious displays in this case, saying that the goal was to carry out the founder's plan of preserving religious liberty to the fullest extent possible in a pluralistic society. She said, by enforcing the religion clauses, we've kept religion a matter for the individual conscience, not for the prosecutor or bureaucrat. And at a time when we see around the world the violent consequences of the assumption of religious authority by government, Americans may count themselves fortunate. Our regard for constitutional boundaries has protected us from similar travails while allowing private religious exercise to flourish. Those who would renegotiate the boundaries between church and state must therefore answer a very difficult question. Why would we trade a system that has served us so well for one that has served others so poorly? This practical truth is hard to deny, and most people understand it. The most concise way of explaining the historical basis 
for the work that we do and the strong commitment for religious freedom is to talk about Roger Williams. It was Baptist Roger Williams, the founder of the First Baptist Church in North America, who helped me to understand soul freedom. As others have described it, soul freedom is a traditional Baptist belief that each of us must make up our own mind about religious questions, and we're accountable to God. Though we are nurtured by family and church, we come to God one at a time, personally and individually. <clears throat> After being banished from Massachusetts Bay Colony, Williams established Rhode Island as a haven for religious freedom, recognizing the rights, <clears throat> the rights of those from other religious traditions, including Native Americans. And it was Williams that said it was necessary to separate the garden of the church from the wilderness of the world. It was a religious understanding of the need to separate the spheres of government and religion that first existed. 150 years before Thomas Jefferson made the phrase separation of church and state famous as a shorthand for the First Amendment's religion clauses. Now, the simplest theological basis for our commitment to religious freedom for all is this belief that we are created in God's image and an understanding that we are created with a free will to accept or reject religion. That's often how I say it in a shorthand way. When we advocate for religious freedom, we are respecting God's creation. And even in Washington, in front of a secular audience or wherever I might be, people understand that and they feel respected by that. If God does not force his will upon us on religious matters, does not coerce us, the least we can do is not let the U.S. Congress do that. Or shall I say, the mayor of Madison. I'm glad to have this opportunity to expand upon this theological basis for principal protection of religious freedom for all. Genesis teaches us that freedom starts with God and that we were made to have a relationship with God. For that relationship to be genuine, it must be voluntary, entered into freely and based on love not in any way compelled or based on fear. Each of us is competent to respond to God as our conscience dictates, unimpeded and uncoerced, either by civil or church authorities. And God calls us in many ways to take risks, to seek justice, to be instruments of peace. We must be free to let God use us, to use our hands and our voices. When we advocate that religion should provide a strong, independent, moral voice in our society, <clears throat> unconnected to the political ends of the government, we are acting in accord with our understanding of God and his design for us. In a sermon on religious liberty published years ago by Reverend Gardner Taylor, a prominent Baptist preacher from Brooklyn, who later lived in North Carolina, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he noted something else <coughs> that we learned from Genesis. He said, the central lure in Eden, in the Eden account of our human beginning is the temptation to exceed our humanity and to be gods. Amid the luscious fruit and endless springtime, a slimy presence strikes at the most vulnerable element in the human makeup. Ye shall be gods. Taylor goes on to remind us, we mortals are created a little lower than God, a lofty status, but in our attitudes and actions, we tend to forget sometimes the little lower part and seek glory that cannot be forcibly seized the status and prerogatives of very God. We are created with freedom to be in relationship with God, but none of us were created as gods. It must be that biblical truth that inspired the pioneers of the early Baptist movement, John Smith and Thomas Helwes, who had to stand up to those authorities that acted like God. They, Helwes and Tom, Smith and Helwes had to demand freedom of conscience and demand for the separation of church and state. 
They experienced firsthand the dangers of combining religious zeal with the coercive power of the state. And they suffered terribly under a king that sought to force religious uniformity. In 1612, Thomas Helwes wrote a seminal treatise on religious freedom called A Short Declaration of the Mystery on Inequity. In a note accompanying his treatise that he sent to King James I, he wrote, the king is but a mortal man and not God, and therefore hath no power over the immortal souls of his subjects to make laws and ordinances for them to set spiritual lords over them. Thus it was from the very beginning of the Hebrew Bible and the very beginning of the Baptist tradition that freedom has been an essential theme of living a life of faith. Of course, that theme of, of freedom continues in the New Testament in many places. And I'm sure many of you have heard some wonderful sermons on religious freedom. In some places in the Bible, it's quite explicit, as in 2 Corinthians. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, pr provides perhaps the most famous reflection on freedom, writing to a congregation that is fighting among themselves over the extent to which they are required to follow aspects of Jewish law, Paul warns against legalism and exclusion. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom Christ has set us free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Of course, that brings up the question of freedom for what? And that is the enduring question, one to inspire a lifetime of sermons and deserving of our best efforts as we seek to live out the life God intends for us. As freedom-loving Christians, we look to the Bible under the Lordship of Christ as the key to discerning God's will for us. As Baptists, we have no creed but the Bible, and we are free and obligated to study and obey the scripture according to the dictates of our conscience. Our focus on the Bible, as interpreted by individuals within the Christian community and with the help of scholarly inquiry, has created diversity and conflict but it has also left our central focus where it should be, on the proclamation that Jesus is Lord. Certainly, it is not that our freedom is unlimited for us to do whatever we want. We are to put our freedom to good use. Paul continues in the fifth chapter of Galatians, verses 13 and 14, says, Brothers and sisters, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Our freedom in Christ can never be separated and must always be limited by the responsibility that we have to one another. Freedom and responsibility, liberty and accountability must always be held at tension. They are two sides of the same coin. We are not a bunch of lone individualists who happen to get here together once a week to worship God in the same place. We are part of a large community responsible not only for ourselves, but for one another too, and united by the proclamation that Jesus is Lord. I know it is a scary concept, this freedom that God gives us. And I understand why some, like those to whom Paul was speaking, are willing to trade their freedom for legalistic rules. At work, on my good days, I understand why some citizens want to pass laws and align government with their Christian beliefs in ways that might not protect the religious freedom of others. It provides temporary comfort 
and I would argue false comfort. But it's understandable. The freedom God gives us and the responsibility that comes along with it produces anxiety. We're always having to choose what is right and what is wrong and what it means to serve one another in love. Yet that is exactly what we are called to do. And indeed, it is what we are made to do. As we go from here, may we continue to accept our calling to be free and responsible and to love and serve one another. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Amen.